The late 1700s was a tumultuous time for the English-speaking world. Just across the English Channel in France, there had been a revolution that had torn down the establishment in, in respect to the government, but it was also quickly chipping away at the ex established expectation of religion. In fact, uh, amongst the, within the, um, the, uh, the French-speaking elites, there was a concerted effort to rapidly secularize the world, to, to tear away the authority structure that was, was a, wor a Christian worldview. And there were many in the English-speaking world that, that rightfully grew alarmed about this happening. This was, this was a problem. This was a difficult thing that, uh, that the world was transitioning as it peered down the 1800s just around the corner. But it also prompted, amongst many English-speaking people, a cry out to God for His work amongst, within the English-speaking world. Starting in 1784, the first Baptist and then nonconformist had began meeting once a week for an hour of prayer where they gathered together and asked God to, as one author put it, for the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe. Their earnest prayer was that the word of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out, all throughout the, the known world, the, the English-speaking world in particular. Enter now the man who is known as the birth uh, as the father of modern missions, William Carey. He was a Baptist minister who felt the tug at his heart. He first went to Calcutta, but was kind of run off by the non-Baptists in the area and became a missionary to India. It was in large part what, what gave rise to what we call the modern missionary movement. And so as the, as the 1800s began, there was also this growth of gospel going all throughout the world. This burden for the souls of mankind all around the globe of every tribe and tongue and nation to hear the gospel. As we make our way through uh, the, the, the second half of the book of Acts, we see the birth of the missionary movement that was revitalized, that was revived in the English-speaking world around the turn of the last century, well, a century before the turn of the last century, the beginning of the 1800s. And so what we're looking at is in many ways, in the, the English-speaking revival of missions is, is parallel. It reminds us of the, the birth of missions for the, the church global. So when we come to Acts chapter 13, we are now looking at an anthology of the birth of missions. Now, it has been some time since we have spent uh, time together in the book of Acts. So here's what I would like for you to do. I want you to go back in your Bibles to Acts 1. And we're actually going to physically thumb through, right? We said last week, and we've said many times before, context matters. So I don't want us to lose our orientation in the book of Acts. Uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided in the seats, you'll find the beginning of the book of Acts on page 575. Page 575, the black Bibles that are provided if you're following along in those. So in January of last year, January of 2019, we introduced the book of Acts. And all through the year last year, until about November, we, we took... Uh, passage by passage, section by section, uh, working our way through the first 13 chapters. And I told you that my intent was to kind of get to the halfway point of Acts, there's kind of a hinge right here, and to stop and move on to something else, and maybe, maybe later down the road we would come back to Acts. Well, I was told in no uncertain terms that was not acceptable. All right, so, uh, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate the desire to continue through the book of Acts, and so um, we adapted the preaching schedule a little bit and said, very well, well, we'll continue our journey through the book of Acts. And so we're now, after some um, transitional, right, we did some preaching on uh, the topic of Christmas in December, and then some introduction uh, of, to our yearly theme and introduction of our covenant series in the, in the month of January. So here we are now in February, picking back up where we left off in November, right? So it's good for us to just kind of Take a quick bird's eye view of the first 13 chapters of Acts. So you're in Acts 1, and you'll remember that the very opening paragraph 
tells us what the book is all about, right? The former account, or if you're using an old King James, the former treatise. This, this, uh, this narrative that I wrote, uh, the former account that I wrote, Theophilus. Now, we said that Theophilus was probably some sort of a protege of Luke. And now when he talks about the former letter, the previous letter that I wrote to you, Theophilus, he's referring to what? He's referring to first Acts, right? Luke, right? The Gospel of Luke, he refers to, he says, this, this previous letter that I wrote to you of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Right? So what he's saying is, Jesus began a work. That's what I told you about in what we now call the Gospel of Luke. Now, Theophilus, I'm turning to what Jesus continued to do through chosen men. And so you recall that we said, really, this, this Acts of the Apostles that is written in most of your book, most of your Bibles, uh, is a title for organizational purpose that, that Bible editors gave it, right? That's not part of the inspired text. You get that? Right? And that perhaps a better title would be, anybody remember? The Acts of the Holy Spirit, good, or another way we could say it is the Acts of Jesus Christ through chosen men, right? And so there is this theme that runs through the book of Acts, this continuation. Jesus physically departs, right? He, he ascends, and as he does, he says, I will send you what? I will send you a comforter, one who will, who will be in my stead. I'm leaving, but, but don't worry, I'm not leaving you alone. So this is the challenge that we see then in verses 4 through 8, that the Spirit is coming. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, verse 8, and then you will be witnesses, and he gives this little outline for the book of Acts, right? So... The Spirit's coming, you'll be witnesses, and then here's the outline, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And that is the rest of the book of Acts. So the first several chapters is the Jerusalem section, and then attention shifts to Judea, Samaria, right? the gospel going for the first time to non-Jewish people and then the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus ascends to heaven, he promises the Spirit, and then they wait for the coming of the Spirit. And that happens in chapter 2, at an event we call Pentecost. You remember this? This is where the Spirit comes with these mighty signs, all of them having Old Testament significance, all of them to, to key us into the fact that that now God resides in his church. Instead of a, a physical fixture, a tabernacle or a temple, that the Spirit is now residing in his people. And this is really, many, many Bible scholars view Acts 2 as the birth of the church. Now, some will debate that, and those are fun theological discussions, why you hold this view or that view or whatever. I happen to concur with the viewpoint that Acts 2 is the birth of the church. As the Spirit is poured out, they are now empowered to be these witnesses that carry the gospel forward to the ends of the earth. And God does some amazing things in chapter 2, which towards the end of chapter 2 grow into a new church, which now goes out in chapter 3 and begins to proclaim the message of Jesus, right? A lame man is healed in the first part, which gives occasion to Peter's message, where he preaches in the outer court of the temple, and that does not set well with the leadership. So here we are only four chapters into the book of Acts, and we're already seeing this theme begin to arise of what? What? I'm sorry? Dissension, good, another word that we could use. Right? There's this persecution, right? There's this opposition that is taking place as the gospel uh, begins to pick up steam, if you will, 
There's also adversity from the enemy. All right? And so they, they warn them in chapter 4, don't preach in the name of Jesus, but instead the church prays for boldness. Now, there are some things that can get in the way, the things that can, can stand as obstacles to the spread of the gospel. And specifically, if God's people are not what they ought to be, that can do harm to the progress of the gospel. And so we have this little almost interruption in chapter 5 that, that reminds us of the importance of living the gospel and how seriously God takes sin. And that is the account of, you remember? Ananias and Sapphira, right? I mean, this is like the height of church discipline here. (laughs) They lie to the Holy Spirit. They put on a show for those around them, acting as if they are giving an entire amount, they're dishonest, and Peter calls them out on that. They're both struck dead. Now, there's some kind of administrative things that begin to go with a growing church. In fact, there is this this friction that begins to happen in the body. And you remember that we we noted that this this really in large part is kind of an ethnic dissension. There's There's this conflict over, you know, the people from our group are not being cared for as the people from the preferred group. Like this is a problem that haunts all of humanity. Even God's redeemed people still have sin natures. And so in, in order to, to answer some of those concerns, a new office is instituted in the church in Acts 6, and that new office is what? Correct, the deacon, which is the word what? Yeah, servant. Right. This is one of one of a couple Bible terms for, the, for, the, for what we would say in English, servant. And so there's these official servants who are, are given a, a role in the church so that the apostles, who were, who were pastoring the church, if you will, can focus on prayer, study of the word. Now, one of these, um, this all may seem like an aside, but it's relevant because one of these deacons becomes the first martyr. So we go back and kind of pick up that theme that we, we kind of pushed the hold button on, right? We talked about, you know, the persecution ramping up, and then when we got to chapter 5, we kind of took a pause and said, okay, here's some things that are going on the church. Here's some background. Okay, so this is the answer of the deacons, and now one of those deacons becomes the first, becomes the first what? Martyr, martyr right. And the word martyr means? Anybody know? Anybody remember? What's that? Witness. Witness. There you go. That's the word. That's the that's the underlying word, right? So, so and and over time, as witnesses were getting killed off, the word kind of migrated in its usage, and and now we refer to a martyr as not just one who witnesses the gospel, but one who actually dies for the witness of the gospel. So Stephen here in chapter seven becomes the first martyr. All right, you're with me? You remember all this? Oh, this is all coming back. Yes, I remember all of this. All right. So in 8, we see the persecution ramp up even more. But this is also introducing us to the character that we are really going to be studying in chapters 13 and following because this is now when Saul can't, comes onto the scene. Saul, yet breathing out suffering, or breathing out threatenings against the church, goes actively after those in the church. But God in his providence has different plans for this man, right? I mean, he, his intent is to put down this, this rising heresy as he sees it, but God has altogether different plans for him, which we see unfold in chapter 9, right? He's on his way to Damascus to persecute believers, and God stops him in his tracks. They have this conversation he is struck blind. He's sent back into the city. Uh, he is converted. He submits. He begins to learn uh, in Jerusalem. His eyesight is restored. And now we have standing on the stage this, this new character, Saul 
or, or Paul. And remember, he explained to you that as we move into chapter 13, he's generally going to be start being called Paul more. There's two occasions where he's still called Saul. Uh, this has to do with his ministry to, to Greek-speaking people, to non-Jewish people, because his, he would have been called Saul amongst the Hebrews and would have been called Paul in the Greco-Roman world. All right? So it's not so much that he's no longer... I mean, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God changed his name from Saul to Paul. Actually, his ministry shifted, which is why he shifted more to the use of the term Paul. It, he actually would have had three names in that world. He also, he also would have had one that was a Latin name. Um, so that's, that's why we see him called Paul more in, uh, moving forward. So Saul, Paul, um, uh, takes, takes, uh, starts to take center stage here in chapter 9. All of this is transi- a transition point in the ministry of the gospel because in chapter 10 we begin to see this, this uh, Judea-Samaria section un- really unfold. The gospel begins to go. The first non-Jewish person is saved, and that was Cornelius, right? And remember this whole vision that Peter has, right? He, he gives them a vision of of what Peter says is unclean and would have been under the Old Testament law, unclean. The sheet comes down. He says, Peter, arise and eat. Peter's like, oh, no, no, I know better. <laughs> and God's like, you don't know better than me. <laughs> arise and eat, right? So he, and he has this vision, but this is all an introduction to be prepared for the arrival of Cornelius, who's converted uh, or, or the arrival of Cornelius's uh, entourage, who's then going to bring Peter. Remember, Peter's going to go in their house. There's significance. There's great significance to that. Peter preaches the gospel, and the first Gentile family uh, is saved. Um, this brings us now to chapter 11, where we see the birth of the church in Antioch. And this, by the way, is Syrian. Antioch. There's two Antiochs. This is Syrian Antioch. And this is where we see the birth of the church. And that might seem insignificant until you realize that what we're getting ready to start in the, in the missions section of Acts, Acts 13, really is, a, is resuming what happened in chapter 11. Chapter 12 is a bit of an aside as we talk about the ramping persecution But this is an occasion for God's sovereign plan to be executed because remember that this persecution results in the dispersal of believers, which we know both from Scripture and from history, was the the great rise to the evangelistic fervor of of the missions movement that we now see unfolding in chapter 13. All right, so you remember all that? Nice, quick, fairly quick overview of 12 chapters of Acts. Comments, questions, things that are unclear on, in the first 12 chapters. All right, now we come to Acts 13, which is the missionary portion of Acts, which picks up where chapter 11 left off, right? Chapter 11 told us about the birth of the church in Antioch, that is to say Syrian Antioch. And I'm going to try to do something that is a bit risky here. All right. I'm going to put on the screen an interactive map. Thought I had it up. Oh, here it is. I minimized it. There we go. All right. So down here is Jerusalem. How about we go different? There we go. Yeah, look at the black screen. Imagine with me, if you will. Have you ever seen that skit where the guy shows slides about his trip and there's nothing up there? It's a hilarious skit. That's what that reminds me of. All right, so down here is Jerusalem, right? This is, the, this is the epicenter of the message of Jesus for the first 12 chapters of Acts. Everything that's happening is happening, and mostly everything is happening in Jerusalem, or it, it traces back to Jerusalem. Um, all the way north up here is this little, it's not little, it's a major seaport town called Antioch, right? That is Syrian Antioch, all right? And that is where our attention now shifts. There we go. 
I'm giving you some geographic context. So this is where we were just looking. Jerusalem is down here. Antioch is right up here. Yeah, that's a good question. It's right up here in Asia Minor. I don't remember exactly, but uh, there's an Antioch in Asia Minor, and it's going to be on my next map here if I can figure out. Oh, I see what's going on. Okay, we'll try again next week because it's not cooperating with me, but that's okay. Some of these maps are probably in your Bible, especially if you have a study Bible. Um, um, but give you some idea. That gives you some con uh, context there, and I don't know why. All right, well, we'll try again another time. I'll uh, try to smooth that out. All right. So we move into this section here where things begin to happen all throughout the known world at the time. But it all begins in chapter 13. And I want to read for us this first few verses. Now, in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. All right, so the ones, the bookends are the guys we already know. Barnabas, we know, from Saul's conversion, and then Saul at the end of the list. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then they fasted and prayed and laid hands on them and sent them away. We see here in this passage several very interesting things that are going to set the stage for our, our ongoing study. The gospel is now moving forward into the world, and God is in His sovereignty choosing certain servants to accomplish this work. The gospel marches forward that way. It, it marches forward at the hands of chosen servants. Now, we do not mean by that that the servants are, are indispensable. What we mean is that God in His providence chooses certain people to be His instruments for the propagation of the gospel. It's not the servants that are important, it is the work of God, yet God chooses to do His work through people. And it's interesting, as we notice these first few verses, what we see amongst these servants. We see, first of all, that there's a great deal of diversity. And this is part of God's beautiful portrait of the servants that he uses to accomplish his work. So notice with me again these, these, these prophets and teachers that are in Antioch. You might read over the list uh, trying to figure out how to pronounce each of them and, and not realize what is being described here. Of course, Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas, who is from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, we're going to see that come up here again real shortly, uh, have already been identified in Acts, but there's several others that are named here. The first one is Simeon called Niger. All right? this, Niger uh, is a, is a uh, Latin nickname, which means black. All right? So it is, it is not just fair, it is safe to assume that he was a black man. This was kind of his nickname, and it was not any type of pejorative. I know that in, in, in America in particular... Um, there are a lot of pejoratives surrounding some of those words. Please understand that this was not intended to be an insult. This was just his nickname. All right. So this, uh, this gentleman from African descent probably uh, is, is probably the first um, uh, black man who's serving in the church. And, of course, you understand that what we call, quote-unquote, white people wouldn't show up on the scene of the gospel for a very long time yet, right? We're, we're way latecomers to the gospel, all right, if you're, if you're white. Um, Lucius of Cyrene uh, came from this, this city of Cyrene. This was a, an important trading city in North Africa. So here's another African man 
We don't know details about him, um, but we know uh, where he was from. We know he was from Cyrene. Uh, Manaen, it says, it notes, has come up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, what in the world is going on here? All right, so Herod Antipas was his childhood buddy. Children would often, the, the prince, the, the, the royal family would often bring in children of the same age that would spend time playing with and interacting with and training with, schooling with their own children, right? I mean, they live in this, you know, high and lofty place, and that can be a very isolating uh, situation for a child. And so the royal court would actually choose other uh, families of, of esteem, families of high society that would be kind of uh, hired friends. <laughs> All right, they would, they would be educated like the, the princes would be. They would play with the princes. They would, they would grow up with them. They would be childhood buddies, right? So we know a couple things about Manian. We know that he was very um, entwined with the Herodian family. They were old family friends. We know that he was educated as a royal person would have been. And we know because he was in the situation that he was of high society. He would have been an aristocrat, uh, would have been his background. Well, somehow he came... Uh, to the knowledge of Christ, uh, converted and became uh, instrumental in the early church there in, in Antioch. So you have here this, um, this mix of people, some rich, some poor, some high class, some low class, all different shades of skin that are together in this Antiochian church. This is a truly cosmopolitan church. It, there's, there's no homogeneity here, right? This is a very heterogeneous church. They, they don't look the same. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different segments of society. They come from different parts of the world. So do you see how God sovereignly orchestrated things so that this was the church that was poised to reach the world because they were the world. They were a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, and God wove together this beautiful tapestry, and this is the church that more than any other changed the world for the gospel of Christ. Now, there is a lot of application in there. We could spend weeks unpacking the reality that, that God doesn't always choose people that look the same. God doesn't always choose people that come from the same backgrounds. In fact, God delights in diversity. The unfortunate thing is that the Western American church has for centuries celebrated homogeneity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? There, there is no more time that is segregated in America than Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. And this is a... This is a sad reality in the American church. Now, I would say that there are some movements afoot to, to work towards greater diversity, to work towards greater understanding of our brothers and sisters in Christ who may not be from the same culture, who may not look like us. But we as God's people should understand that, that what matters, what unites us together is not any external factor. What unites us together is not that we all come from the same class of society, that we all have the same skin tone, that we all come from, from the same side of the tracks, or that we all have the same education, or that we all have the same cultural background. Those things are superficial to the important thing that unites believers together, and that is the cause of Christ, the cause of the gospel. In this church, you see a beautiful unity in the midst of great diversity. And in fact, it's reflected in the leadership. I mean, you read through this list of men and you say, these men were very diverse. They weren't all the same. And so we too ought to value what God values. 
And isn't it interesting, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the churches sometimes that seem most passionate about reaching the world are the ones like the church in Antioch, right? They're the ones that have the world represented on Sunday morning. They have the world represented in their membership. And so may God help us, and you know I've shared this heart with you before. May God help us and may God uh, give us opportunity to be more diverse, to, to understand that the superficial things uh, are not what unite us together, but the gospel of Jesus Christ unites us together. So unity in, amidst diversity. We see that God uses active servants in, in this passage as well. So you note here in this passage what is happening in the first part of verse 2. As they... Now what's the next word in your Bible? As they minister, does anyone have something else there? No ESVs in the room, huh? Okay, worshiping, right? So why do some translations have ministering and some have uh, worshiping? And the reason is because the underlying word is, is fraught with both meanings, right? So the word that, that underlies it in the original text is the word from which we get our word, English word liturgy, or liturgical. It is a formal service to the Lord. And often that revolves around worship or the church corporate. All right. So this word could legitimately be seen as worship, and indeed it occurs that way in some translations, uh, but it could also be rendered service. It, it implies a, a formal role of service in the church, right? So we still kind of say this. Sometimes we talk about someone Oh, so-and-so served as chairman of the board for two years. What do they mean? I mean, they held an official position of service. And so that's what this word implies here. So when you see this list, you're probably looking at the leadership team of the Antioch church. Were they pastors? Were they deacons? Were there some of both? We, we don't know all of the exact details, but that's kind of what the, what the word implies. So they're actively serving in the church. They're the leadership team of the church. And what happens is God uses those who are serving. That's important. Do you want God to use you in great ways? Well, I think it was Dr. McAllister said last week, you can't steer a parked car. Right? Get moving. Get serving. Get using the opportunities that God has already given you. I was highly encouraged this morning that, that Brother John came to me and said, one of the Wolsifer boys wants to serve as an usher. Is that okay? I said, not only is it okay, that's fantastic, right? That is a, that is a fantastic opportunity. I'm glad he's, he's eager to serve in that way. You better believe it. Put him to work, <laughs> right? That, that's the attitude that we should have. It's like, how can I serve? How can I get involved where I am right now? What opportunities are there for me where I am? Because as we do that and God uses us in, certain, in the spheres that we're being faithful, God will then expand our opportunities for service. So get moving. Get serving. You say, well, I don't, I don't know what God wants me to do. Find something and take action. Get, get plugged into using God's service. In fact, into being used in God's service. This is exactly what happens, right? So the Holy Spirit says to the, rest, to the leadership team, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. I have a special work for them. These guys are actively serving. I have, I have a special work for them. Now, it's interesting, thirdly, that God is using his church to direct those that are already moving forward in service. Right, so there's this, there's this delicate balance. And sometimes we get this false notion that that the direction of God, or what some people refer to as the, the call of God to a certain type of ministry, is entirely subjective. And God's calling me to this, and, and nobody can say anything about it because it's God's call. Well, actually, if you study how God directs people in ministry, the church is an integral part of that. I mean, so do you understand what is happening here in the last part of verse 2? Now separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them, and having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So Paul and Barnabas are actively ministering to the Antioch church. Here, here's this men, the group of men that are named here. And the Holy Spirit directs the leadership to specifically designate two of them. 
to be sent away on the first missionary journey. I mean, imagine this in the modern church. Imagine one Sunday morning, I stand up here and I say, um, I'd like our two deacons to stand. And um, Pastor Dan and I have been praying about this. And we believe that God is directing the Becks to go to Tanzania to carry the light of the gospel on behalf of North Hills Baptist Church. I mean, that's not really the way it happens in the modern church, right? But, but that's, the way, that's what's being described here. Like the leadership says, you guys are doing a great job serving, so we're going to kick you out. Right? We're going to push you out on your, because you guys are doing, you're so wonderful, we can't keep this here. We've got we've to put your service, your gifts to work in other places, spreading the gospel. May I just challenge you with this bizarre notion that maybe God wants to use his church to direct you? And that maybe your, your prayer, your seeking for what God has for your life may not just be a subjective you in your prayer closet activity, but that God might want to use his church. So I want to tell you, since I've picked on Doug, I want to actually tell you their story. Some of you know this and some of you don't, all right? Several years ago, the Becks were praying about how God could use them in service, and, and God put it on their heart to, to come alongside a pioneering endeavor and, and just work as, as lay people who, who are shoulder to the plow, helping a ministry. And as they prayed about it, they believed God was directing them to Quebec, Canada, to serve alongside a missionary family that was, that was spreading the gospel in Quebec. Um, they made plans to go. They were looking towards moving to Quebec, Canada. I believe you even had a date set. Am I right? Or a range? All right. So, and all of a sudden, an emergency happened of sorts with this family in Canada, and they literally had to pack up and move like within days. They had to pack up their family and get out of the country. So, the Becks are like, I, now what do we do? I mean, we thought that was God's plan for us. Well, very wisely, Doug approached their pastor at the time, Jeff Bailey, who's pastor in Pensacola, Florida, who is our sending church, all right? And Doug said, Pastor, this is what's going on. What should we do? And Pastor Bailey said to him, I just this week talked to Jeremy, and you should go to Austin, Texas. And the rest is history. That's how they wound up here, all right? And, and as you know, the Becks are a tremendous blessing to our church. Uh, uh, Doug is one of our deacons. And I just rejoice that God directed them here. But he didn't do it in isolation. He, he used his church to direct them. And, and, if, and if we will be humble enough to say, you know, God, we, we don't know everything. And sometimes we should get wise counsel. And sometimes we should, should lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ I mean, I understand somebody can't tell you what God's will is for your life. I get, get all that, right? But, but I think we should be more enmeshed in how is God using his church to direct us. Someone asked me a number of years ago, what's the difference between a burden and a call? All right? Well, the, the, the term call can be fraught with all kinds of thorny issues, all right? But, but one of the things that I challenged him with is that if God is really directing you into ministry you are going to see that affirmed by the local church. That's kind of how it works in the New Testament. I know this is, this is strange. This is on the edge of our thinking. But I really, as I read the New Testament, I see God using his church to direct people. So that's what's happening, right, in these early verses of Acts 13. God is using his church to direct people who are already actively serving let me ask you a question. Is the term mission or missionary in the Bible? Probably not. Listen, I'm asking probably not. Good, right? Because you know a trick question when you hear it. And the answer is short of, sort of, right? So the word to send comes into the Latin as mission. Uh, it's been anglicized a little bit, but that's basically the word. So missionary is the word sent one. When we talk about missionaries, that's what we're talking about. 
people who the church is sending as ambassadors, not only of the gospel, but of that local church. All right? Now, let's talk just a little bit of missions philosophy for a second. I believe that in the modern Western world, missions has become too um, uncoupled with the local church. When you read about missions in the book of Acts, it is, it is hand in glove. It is, it is tightly woven with the local church ministry. Now, there are some parachurch organizations that have risen up over the centuries to help fill a void, but I believe it is a void that has been left open by local churches shirking their responsibility. The spread of the gospel around the world is a local church calling, and missionaries are those who are partnered with local churches working on their behalf to spread the gospel in other places. That does not mean that churches cannot confederate together to accomplish this. Actually, as we progress through the book of Acts, you're going to see churches working together. Paul did not just have one sponsoring church. church. He actually had multiple ones. So what I'm, saying, and what I'm saying is not it has to be one local church that's solely sponsoring a missionary. But here's the thing. Sometimes local churches um, have this notion that, well, that's other people's responsibility. That's other churches' responsibility. And what, what I observe in the book of Acts is that local churches take this responsibility very seriously. They take it to heart. They take it very personally. Local churches are sending the sent ones. But then, of course, the gospel is met with adversity. And I'll, move, I'll try to move more quickly for the second point. We see gospel uh, ministers experiencing adversity in this passage First of all, because the enemy hates opposition, or hates the gospel, and so will oppose it. So notice with me in verse 6, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they reached a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew named Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. By the way, Sergius Paulus also would have been the Latin name of our good friend, the Apostle Paul. Um, and intelli- but this proconsul, it was uh, an intelligent man, it says, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, now let me eliminate some confusion by explaining to you this is the proper name of the guy that was just a few verses earlier called Bar-Jesus. Same guy. All right. He's a sorcerer. Uh, he withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of God? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So, Elymas, the magician, the, the, the Elymas Magus, he was actually historically quite, quite well known. Uh, he was a wise man. He was a religious advisor and, in fact, was some sort of a court chaplain for the proconsul. Um, this ruler of this area of the world. He was, um, a proconsul would have been someone who had been appointed by the Roman government to be kind of a governor uh, in this area. He continues to resist and resist and to argue against what Paul is saying. That's actually the the idea of the verb. It's an imperfect tense verb. He is repeatedly resisting uh, what is being said. Paul then labels that as deceit. You're a deceitful man. And actually, the word that Paul uses here is is from the root word of fish bait. You're trying to, to bait the proconsul. Uh, it's the idea of being unscrupulous. He was ready for, for evil. He was looking for evil ends. And so Elymas was an unrighteous man. He was perverting God's word. He was twisting 
the message of Jesus into false doctrine. Well, we see that God works on Paul's behalf, strikes him blind. It was probably uh, only for a little while because it refers in the last part of uh, Paul's speaking, not seeing the sun for a time. So this was probably a temporary blindness that descended on him. But this is jarring to those that are around him. All of his compatriots run away. I mean, he's like, somebody help me, and they're all scattered. <laughs> and uh, furthermore, it is jarring to the proconsul, who actually professes faith in Christ. And it's interesting that even secular history corroborates for us that this proconsul, as well as his family, um, came to faith in Christ and lived a faithful Christian life um, for, their, for their days there. So God works. But, but understand that from the very beginning of the gospel's progress into the known world, there was opposition of the enemy. The enemy hates it when the gospel is going forward. But it doesn't stop there because sometimes there's opposition from without. Some of our opposition is from within our own hearts, isn't it? Some of it is, is the reality that ministry can be discouraging. Ministry can be difficult. I mean, they're not seeing a lot of converts. I mean, one high-profile one, his family. But early on, they're not seeing a whole lot. Furthermore, there's a little bit of a clue in Galatians about what's taking place about this time. Because if you look at a map, which I was not able to do for you, but if you look at a map and you watch the progress of this first missionary journey, and then you go over to Galatians 4.13, he says that he preached to those in, in the Galatian region because of a sickness, they actually kind of skip over an area. And, and some note that, that we know from history that this area was fraught with malaria. It is it's not something we know, all right? But, but as we put little clues together from the Scripture, we think that perhaps Paul contracted malaria right about this time. So the, the going's getting tough. And if you know anything about Paul, it's only going to get worse, right? And so there's, pro, there possi there's possibly sickness. There's certainly opposition of the devil. There are not a lot of results being seen. And, and you see this little note in the end of verse 5. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue. They also had John. Now, who's that? That's John Mark, Right? Now, we know that things turn out pretty well for John Mark. But John comes on the scene as their assistant in verse 5. Now, skip down to verse 13. When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Persia, uh, Perga in, in Pamphylia. And John, what? Departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, from what we know about John Mark, he had a very comfortable upbringing. And this is not comfortable. This is not fun. Now, it doesn't tell us in the text his reasons for leaving, but here's what we do know. Paul saw him as kind of a traitor, right? Because do you remember the beginning of the second missionary journey? Paul's like, no, we're not taking him. Barnabas is like, oh, yeah, we should take him. Paul's like, no. Why was Paul so dogmatic? Because he really saw John Mark in the light of, this wimpy kid who gave up on us. That's kind of my vandal version, right? But, but that, that's what's happening here is one of their compatriots, one of their ones that is coming along to help them, to assist them, to, to bolster them, to strengthen them. He's forsaking them. He's going back to Jerusalem to Mama. Now, Barnabas is a tender-hearted man, and he's also related to John Mark. And so he... He has a soft heart. He has this heart of mercy. And so when the second missionary journey comes along, he says, you know what? I'm going to be patient. We're going to take this along, this young man along. And, of course, we know the history. We know Paul and Barnabas separated, and God used that. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the second missionary journey. But it, at this juncture, they're being abandoned by John Mark. And quite, quite possibly because, well, you know what? Ministry can be discouraging. It can be hard. It's never promised to us to be easy. I mean, never share the message of Christ and you won't have to look like a fool for your faith. Never stand for a righteous cause and you won't 
you won't have to be ostracized for your stand. Never hold to a moral standard, and you need not fear being called self-righteous or a prude. Never serve the needs of others, and you'll avoid being taken advantage of. Never put yourself out to evangelize or disciple someone, and you won't have to worry about your efforts being squandered by someone who turns their back. But if you do serve Christ, opposition will come. Oh, the rewards are rich. The joys are great. But the opposition is real. The reality is that sometime in our heart of hearts, we think to ourselves, Lord, I just want to quit. I just want to go back to Jerusalem where it's comfortable. I mean, this sounded really good. I mean, Cyprus, man, that's like, that's like going to Hawaii. That's going to be great. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on board with you, Paul. Oh, wait. This isn't the vacation trip that I thought it was going to be. Right? We're all tempted at times to just go back to Jerusalem. But God is calling us to a road of difficulty sometimes. Push through the temptation to quit. Encourage your heart in the Lord at times when you get discouraged. And those times will come. When you're tired, when you're weary, when you don't want to keep going on for the cause of Christ, carry forward. Because the rewards are yet ahead. What does the scripture say? Do not grow weary in doing well. For in due season you will reap if you do not faint. So this morning, are you discouraged? Look to the hope that is before you. Look to the joy of, of sharing the gospel with others. Look towards the, the opportunity to give the gospel to other people and to carry the gospel forward. What about you this morning? Perhaps it's, perhaps it's a willingness to go. Now, God may not direct you to another place. He may not direct you to, to Tanzania or, or to some place around the world, but, but God is directing you to a work. Maybe it's just to walk across the street to meet that neighbor, to build a relationship that is a redemptive one. But are you willing? Are you willing to surrender to do whatever God wants, wherever God directs you? Maybe God is calling you to, to continue to serve in the church in Jerusalem, right, where, where he has you. But, but God may also be, say, be saying about you, as he said about these men, separate me, these people, for a special work that I've called them to. Are we willing to go? We sang a few moments ago the, 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 the tune setting of David Livingston's little poem, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, but sustain me. Sever any tie except the tie that binds me to you. Is that our prayer this morning? Let's bow before the Lord. Thank you for this text of Scripture, Lord, that reminds us of the work that you are doing and have done around the world. May we continue forward as we serve you. May we do so in spite of discouragement. May we do so in a way that is um, resilient, that is um, fir fixed firm in the reality that you are doing a work and we are a part of that work. I'd invite you to remain bowed before the Lord for just a few moments.